a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, I'm not going to try and sugarcoat this. We talk about difficult, sometimes treacherous subjects on this program, always with the aim of helping you come away better informed, more capable of charting your own course. To that end, I'm happy to welcome my friend Eric Peters back to the show from ericpetersautos.com. How are you today, Eric? Well, I'm good, except for the news that apparently five times is not the charm. Uh Uh-oh, five times. Vaccinated. Oh, (laughs) The news has percolated upward oh, wow. uh, through the sieve that uh, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky, great proponent of the vaccines, <laughs> who has been vaccinated five times, has come down with the very sickness that the vaccines were supposed to stop the spread of. You know, it's I know memory fades quickly, and it fades quickly for me, but a year ago, We were in such an uncomfortable place with the pressure and the coercion that was being put on the unvaccinated, the demonization, and yet uh, things have shifted somewhat. And I don't know if it's a wholesale change, but uh, I I know things have shifted because uh, who was it? uh, I forget her name now. Um, Oster, the the professor who who was saying now, well, we we need some kind of a COVID amnesty thing for all the things we did and said mm-hmm. when we you know we were in the dark and nobody really mm-hmm. knew what was going on. I'd love to get your reaction to her call for amnesty. Uh, I think it's despicable because in the first place, uh, you can only have forgiveness in the face of atonement, acknowledging that uh, whatever the issue was, that you did something wrong, that you're sorry about it, and that you're going to take corrective action so that it doesn't happen again. And none of that has happened at all with regard to any of this, with regard to the masking or the vaccinating. People forget that at this very moment, people who are in the military are still being coerced into taking the vaccines. Uh, They're being pushed on kids, on families. Uh, None of that has changed. And so I don't want to hear anything about forgive and forget. And let's just hold hands in kumbaya. It wasn't just that these people insulted us and mocked us. Many of them actively wished that we would be dead or put into a camp uh, for refusing to put on a mask or to to take these drugs. It's absolutely despicable. And there needs to be accountability uh, and a, 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 a massive mea culpa from these people before we can even talk about atonement and forgiveness. Here, here. No, I, I agree. And you were mentioning, you know, the, the coercion still goes on. I think I was just reading yesterday, Dr. Peter McCullough, a, a world-renowned cardiologist who was one yep. of the one of the few people who spoke out early on about, whoa, there are some there are some things about uh, the vaccine's effect on the heart that uh, that we need to take yep. a much closer look at. They've stripped him of his credentials. He, he no longer yeah, has a license to practice. An, yeah, he is an eminent cardiologist. Uh, so he is a person who has every business to be speaking about this particular topic. Um, he's not just some guy tweeting things online. He's an expert. And uh, what, he, what he said was factual. And for speaking facts, the man is being stripped of his, his ability to practice medicine. Meanwhile, this quack doctor, uh, Dr. Uh, Rochelle Walensky, is still the head of the CDC. And it's not just that she's a quack. She's a quack with de facto government powers. You know, the CDC, like all these bureaucracies, has acquired a de facto legislative power. They issue what are called guidelines and recommendations that have the force and effect of law. 
we had to put on masks, or at least people were threatened that they wouldn't be allowed to shop and, and go to work unless they put on a mask uh, because of the CDC. So you have empowered quacks like Rochelle Walensky and Dr. Fauci, of course. And meanwhile, legitimate doctors who actually practice medicine are being uh, cast out of the profession. It's, it's just stupefying. Well, and I, I don't just point to, to the policy makers and the enforcers, but also I look at the people who either condoned it or participated or shamed or ridiculed or just stood by and watched the mob lash out at uh, those of us who were refusing to, to be coerced. And I think, uh, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer in forgiveness, mainly for the peace that it gives me. But like you, mm-hmm. without some kind of major assurance that uh, there's the kind of accountability that this will not happen again, I'm not about to extend forgiveness to people who just seem to want to avoid consequences. Exactly. No one ought to. Uh, I uh, have great sympathy for people who uh, were misled and who put on a mask and who got the shot because they believed what they were told uh, by people like Biden and Walensky and all of those other folks. But I draw the line when it comes to people who... Uh, crossed that line and insisted that other people also do the same thing and that if they didn't do those things that they should be subject to essentially a form of apartheid or even potentially worse than that. Remember, I mean, at the peak of this, they were talking about excluding people from society completely who refused to get the so-called vaccine. And in some cases, they were even talking about hurting hurting us into, into camps. You know, I mean, this was really serious business. It's not just a matter Unlike the, the leftists who get triggered when their feelings are hurt, this is far deeper than this. You know, there, there was actual harm caused, massive harm caused to millions and millions of people, and it cannot be forgiven until it is apologized for. Yep. It's, it's hard to forget people who sold out their fellow human beings out of a sense of fear and self-righteousness. And, and again, I, it's not to say that, uh, you know, there is no forgiveness forever. I, I'm willing to forgive, but I want to see ac- people actually own up to what they did wrong and, and make sure that we're taking steps it doesn't happen again. And there's another aspect to this, too, and that is to make sure it never happens again. And the only way that's going to happen is if there is a general acknowledgement that what happened was horrible and wrong and evil, even, and that such a thing cannot ever be countenanced again. I want to I want to shift gears just slightly on this too. One of the big things that we had to deal with was of course the suppression of misinformation, which basically was yeah. anything that challenged the <laughs> official narrative was considered misinformation. Now we have information coming out that uh, the Department of Homeland Security has been working hand in hand with social media companies as to who needs to be suppressed. That's a pretty big story, wouldn't you say? But is it surprising? Oh, no, I mean, you know, We already know about the, the, to use the word that the left loved to use so much, collusion uh, of Facebook and Twitter with the Biden regime to promote their narrative and to silence anything uh, that contradicted the narrative. And, you know, as you and I talked a little bit off the air, that is a good working dition, uh, definition of fascism. And we've got a lot of fatuity with regard to the definition of fascism tossed around a lot because of ignorant people who don't understand that the defining thing, of, uh, the thing that defines fascism is a partnership between the state and corporations to advance the interests of both. And that's exactly what's been happening here. Yeah. It do, I don't know what it leaves us in terms of options of, look, I'm going to continue to live as a free man. Damn it. You know, I'm going to do that. But uh, 
I hope that this gives some of the people who are sitting on the fence or otherwise just afraid to stand up. You know, they didn't want to be the whack-a-mole, you know, object of, of getting whacked. But I hope that they can see it. This is why it's important to stand up. You don't just go along for the sake of avoiding, you know, conflict or unpleasantness. Yeah, you know, resistance is not futile. You know, that is one of the really heartening lessons to take from the events of the past three years. You know, at the height of the insanity, a lot of us felt that, oh, my gosh, you know, this is it. I can't, you know, I can't function in this society. I'm just going to have to bend knee and put that mask on. I'm going to have to take that jab uh, in order to be able to allow, in order to be able to go to work. Well, thank God for the people who said, no, I'm going to resist. I'm not going to do it. Uh, We owe a huge debt to these people. Uh, Those who did it proved that resistance is not futile. Uh, uh, Enough of them made it possible to establish a control group with regard to both the masks and the vaccines to give the lie to the fact that either of those things worked, as the left likes to put it. So, again, take heart and realize that, you know, taking a stand is not suicidal. Taking a stand is absolutely essential. Got about a minute here before the break, Eric, but I have to ask you, we're one week out from midterms. I have a sense that maybe this uh, this awakening and sense of, whoa, we're not going to let this happen again, is going to be driving people to a greater participation in in the election. Do you have any, any sense? Has anything changed since the last time we talked on this? Yeah, that's my sense, too. But, you know, it's hard to know what's going to happen because of what's already happened in the 2020 election. On the other hand, I think that if enough people are fired up enough to get involved, it's going to become very, very difficult for them to do what they did in the last election. And by that, I mean, if it's just an overwhelming tsunami of rejection for what's been going on the last three years, it'll be hard for them to get away with uh, fiddling with the results to get the results that they want. I know there's been a lot of talk here in, in my home state of Idaho about, now we got to be aware of these election deniers. You know, because, yeah. Uh, yeah, but I, I guarantee you, um, Ammon Bundy is running for governor yeah. here, here in Idaho. And I don't know if he has a chance of winning, but if he were to win, I promise you the people who are crowing the loudest about election deniers would become the biggest election deniers the world has ever seen. You mean like Hillary Clinton back yes, in 2016? exactly. <laughs> yeah. Right. Hypocrisy knows no bounds, apparently. Elections are only illegitimate when non-leftists win. Well, and the way this election is being framed, at least from from uh, the Democrats and, and the media, is if you vote for anybody but a Democrat, you are voting for fascism. So you are a Nazi. Well, you're a threat to our democracy. Yes. That's, what they, that's how they put it. Uh, we live in clown world. When we come back, Eric, let's talk about peak oil. That's a phrase we've heard mm-hmm. before, but now we actually might be approaching it. Yep. We'll take a quick break. Back after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. We are talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, I understand that there is a phrase that's been around for a while called peak oil. I think I heard mm-hmm. it about 20 years ago, but I'm actually hearing it now. And as you point out in an article you just posted, it, it might actually be here for real. Yeah, but for different reasons. You know, you and I have been hearing about peak oil, supposedly, meaning that we're going to run out of oil for uh, most of our lives. Problem was, of course, from the standpoint of those who don't like oil, uh, it turns out that there's plenty of oil. Um, so they had to induce an artificial scarcity 
by cutting off uh, the the supply of it through closing pipelines uh, and uh, and and not drilling for more of it. So there was a big problem with that, though politically, uh, gas prices tripled and diesel prices tripled. So Biden decided to open up the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and dump oil onto the market to temporarily tamp down the prices of gas and diesel, hoping that people would be grateful for that and wouldn't vote against him come the midterms. But the problem with that is that that oil is all now gone, and the government's own energy information uh, agency reports that uh, there is a dearth of supply of diesel and that that's really going to begin to hit home in the next few weeks uh, and that there's no way to do anything about it because there has been no uptick in supply. So there is the potential for uh, massive price increases and not just as the fuel, but also for things that are fuel dependent, particularly food, which gets trucked to your store by trucks that burn diesel fuel. And, you know, this story has not been covered nearly enough I think, given the the serious potential uh, consequences of what's going on. No, and and I the reason I'm so grateful you wrote this article is because uh, a family member who works within the grocery industry actually uh, called my father-in-law, you know, a few days ago and said, "Just a heads up, but uh, there's a very real chance we could see a drastic slowdown, if not a shutdown, in uh, in our resupply here at the grocery store." And and mm-hmm. and the thing. The thing people ought to understand most of all is that if this does happen, and I'm hoping that it doesn't, but if it does, uh, uh, it's going to be blamed on the Republicans. You know, if the Democrats lose badly next week, uh, a couple of weeks later around Thanksgiving when this stuff starts to happen, then they'll say, look what happened. You voted for these awful Republicans, and it's all their fault. That's what they're going to try to pull off, I think. I get, and the question is, will the American public buy it? I'm guessing probably not as easily as they would have two or three years ago. You know, I hope not. I've been trying to draw a line to connect the dots, to point out to people that the same people who told you safe and effective are also telling you that the climate is changing and telling you all sorts of other things that all lead to the same thing, which is to your ensurfment and your impoverishment. Yeah. And, and really, realistically, you know, with if if there is like a, a serious shortage of diesel fuel, um, that doesn't leave people a whole lot of options. And I'm looking around me, not just, to, you know, people who want to drive their big diesel trucks or even the mm-hmm. delivery vehicles. I live in farm country and I think about those huge tractors yep. and, and all the stuff that's that's going on to create and to plant and harvest food. That's going to come to yeah, a halt agricultural as well. machinery and heavy machinery. Also, diesel electric trains. You know, our economy runs on diesel, and most people don't realize that because most people drive a gas-powered vehicle, uh, by and large. You know, that's the overwhelming preponderance of vehicles in private hands. But it's diesel that powers the economy. And if there is a diesel shortage, there's going to be a shortage of everything. And when there's shortages, uh, things cost more and things begin to come unglued. And, of course, it's just, you know, perfect timing that it's going to happen as the weather starts to turn cold on top of everything else. Kind of scary stuff. I mean, look, I, I expect if you live a long time, you're going to see interesting times. But mm-hmm. uh, it looks like we are we are fast approaching things getting even more interesting than they have been. And frankly, the last three years yeah. were way more interesting than I would have cared for. Well, and interesting on purpose. And again, I harp on this because I think it's important. This isn't just some random happenstance, a natural catastrophe, like a hurricane that rolls in. And that sucks, you know, and a lot of damage is caused. But we understand that it's an act of God, so to speak. It just happens. And that's life. This is something that has been deliberately 
and malignantly contrived by people who can't abide the thought of average people having things, uh, particularly wealth, uh, and having financial security, and therefore not being dependent upon the government for things. They don't like that. They want us reduced to a condition of serfdom. And uh, I think people should bear that in mind and never forget it when they, when they contemplate these issues. Well, and, and here you have the president uh, just a few days ago. Wasn't he issuing some kind of an ultimatum to uh, the oil and gas companies? You guys need to up your production and you need to bring down mm-hmm. your prices. Basically telling them you need to defy every law of economics to do what I'm telling you to do. Well, it reeks of desperation. He also begged, literally begged the Saudis uh, to pump some more oil into the world market. Uh, again, uh, for the sake of political expediency, I mean, the depth of cynicism of this man and the people behind him is almost impossible to articulate. You know, he has vocally and abundantly and very publicly talked about how he wants to end fossil fuels and transition us all into this electric, electrified future. But then, you know, oh, we've got an election coming up. We better get as much oil into the system as we can. So maybe people will, will work for us. You know, I mean, think about the, the cynicism that that kind of thing entails. Yeah, it's pretty crass. <laughs> it's it's bad. But those of us who are determined to, to live as free individuals, I, I hope that, to, and, and I, I'm getting this from you, maybe, maybe I'm reading more into it, Eric, but it seems yep. like there is, a, there is a turning that's taking place here. We're, we're not just seeing a bunch of obedient sheep marching in formation into the pen. I think uh, we're starting to see some people become aware of what's going on and, and start to break from the herd. Yeah, self-interest is a powerful thing, and particularly when you have to think about the interests of your family, your children, the people that are dependent on you. And I think perhaps the, the single greatest boon that has inadvertently arisen from everything that's happened over the last few years is that people are beginning to no longer trust what they're told by the government, by corporations, by the media. They're beginning to do what people should have been doing all along, which is to practice due diligence and to look into things and find out, hey, is this true or is it false before they agree to do something? Well, this is why we need to, to become our own fact checkers. And it also makes me grateful for individuals like you who spend, you know, your working hours trying to get the information out there so people can make informed decisions. That's something our, our news media really isn't committed to at this point. Well, hey, and you're doing the same thing, so we can compliment each other while we're at it. I guess we are the good guys. Okay, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm taking it too far there. But well, you know, isn't it a sad measure of the times that simply being a person of good faith, trying to be honest, uh, somehow elevates you above the herd? Well, I'm try- I, I know the reasons why I do it, but I, I suspect you're doing it for very similar reasons too. It's, it's not. This is not about building a monument to ourselves and oh, look how smart we are and everything. It's, it's about we want to maintain those freedoms, not just for ourselves, but for everybody. And, and in order to well, do and I that, want to be able to look at myself, I want to be able to look at myself in the mirror in the morning and not throw up. You know, I want to when I when I become old and I'm on my deathbed, I want to look back and know that I wasn't a dirtbag. You know, that's 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 just that's the main reason that I'm doing it. No, I think that's a very legitimate reason. Uh, Vin Soprinowitz used to write for the Las Vegas Review Journal. And he he used kind of a deathbed analogy to make a very similar point, saying, look, would you rather when your grandkids are standing around your your deathbed as you are getting ready to exit this life, would you rather tell them, well, I never really made any waves. I went along and, you know, I was I was a good person because I didn't Mm -hmm. cause anybody, you know, any discomfort. Or would you want them to know I did what I could and sometimes I suffered for it and sometimes people hated me, but uh, I wanted people to know that uh, right is right, regardless of what the majority is doing. 
that and you know we owe a debt you know people you and you and i and people our age uh owe a debt to the prior generation that gave us this life of freedom and abundance that a lot of us took for granted is you know this is just this is the normal way of things and that that is there are people out there who are trying to take that away from us and to take that away from children and from the future and that's an outrage and that sense of obligation and outrage i think it should fuel us and drive us to make sure that it does not happen Okay. Again, I'm talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. I'll have a link to his website in my, in my show notes. Eric, great to visit with you as always. Next week, I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about as the election. We're going to have a lot to comes. talk about next week. Yep. <laughs> All right. Stay safe, my friend. We'll talk soon. You too. Thanks, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. And a quick shout out to GarageDoorProServices.com, a local company to St. George, Utah, Cedar City, Utah, Mesquite, Nevada, and Colorado City, Arizona. These are garage doors made in America. They install them, they service them, they repair them, both commercially as well as residentially. And if you want to call them, you can pick up the phone and dial 435-525-2773. I recommend go to their website, garagedoorproservices.com. I'm happy to have Garage Door Pros as a sponsor of this show. I know they'll take good care of you. And I hope that when you do business with them, you'll tell them I'm here because Brian sent me your direction. So I still got to get this out of my system. The idea that, uh, well, you know, I think it's time we talk about amnesty for those people who, uh, you know, may have said or done things that uh, in the heat of COVID seem to, you know, be perceived by some as somehow destructive. Yes. I think uh, El Gato Malo, the Borquato Gato Substack, has a really good takedown of Professor Emily Oster's no good, really bad, terrible idea. But... More than just ranting about, hey, no, you, you're not going to get away with just a simple, uh, oh, wow, you know, I guess uh, we all screwed up somehow. And technically, we're all to blame. You know, we were in the dark. This is one of the best takedowns that I've seen because it gives some very specific reasons why we cannot just allow this to, to evaporate. And, and I guess, you know, what we're being told here is suck it up and move on. But that can't happen. And the reason why is if we suck it up and move on, we are going to see this happen again, probably in, in a larger scale than what we saw during COVID. So if we're going to declare a pandemic amnesty and forgive one another for what we did and said when we were in the dark about COVID, somehow that seems pretty one-sided. And uh, El Gato Malo says, look, just to be clear, Emily's not advocating for giving those who deliberately spread misinformation though she does seem a bit confused about just who that might be. But her, we were all in the dark and people said lots of things and some wound up right and some wrong, and we all just need to get over it and move on as recrimination's not useful. That's hollow and false. What does that serve? Why should we, why should we forgive those who, through stupidity or cupidity and fear, spent three years denying a hundred years of evidence-based science in order to attack our lives and livelihoods? Oh, no worries. I'm sure you had your reasons or you were just following orders or you were just doing what the authorities said. No. 
And Elgato Milo points out very rightly, there was a whole pile of excuses that sounded an awful lot like that rejected back in the late 1940s. So for that reason, we should take issue with Emily. And it's precisely because following vicious evil orders is so easy in times of fear and that humans break and bow to authority with such ease, there have to be some sharp penalties, reputational and otherwise, for doing this kind of stuff. Otherwise, you're just greasing the rails for the next time. It's the low-energy path of submission and freeing it from consequence, which serves to render it a path more followed. Now, ignorance of the law is not an excuse, neither is ignorance of ethics or epidemiology. In the end, Elgato Malo says we all stand culpable for what we choose to do based on whatever information we have, and this is why... To my mind, those with little information should so stringently avoid doing radical and dramatic things. Isn't that just basic sense? So why would we seek to reduce the penalties for having violated such a simple tenet? And even if we accept this we-were-in-the-dark line of reasoning, it still makes no sense. Number one, we were not in the dark. We had a hundred years of evidence-based pandemic and epidemiological guidance and guideline upon which to rely Some tried to follow these bodies of canon and were shouted down by those seeking to do exactly what that guidance admonished against. That is, lack of knowledge, abrogating actual knowledge, and panic-driven superstition superseding evidence. Equating those two viewpoints as equivalent? Well, he says that's pure nonsense. Number two, even if no one truly knew anything, then this is a reason for humility, not stridence. The base case is always respect others and their rights. Do not panic. Don't do anything crazy or drastic without a very sound reason. But that's not what happened. A bunch of terrified anti-science loons got loose with global government and pushed literally unprecedented in human history programs of societal and economic upheaval that flat out broke the world while predictably having zero effect on the pandemic. Guys, you took your lead from China. China! Now, the precautionary principle does not state every time you get scared, do the most radical thing you can think of if it feels like safety. That's precisely what it warns against. Such excursions into superstitious supplication of pseudoscience are not evidence-based epidemiology. They're not even sanity. And again, calling that an equivalent viewpoint to we need strong data-driven evidence to take such outlandish actions, presuming they're permissible at all, itself deeply questionable. That's pure nonsense. Number three, he says, this presumption of prerogative to force upon others the unfounded desires of those in the dark fails. It fails inherently, rather, on every metric germane to sustaining a free society. We didn't know, so we just took your rights away, just in case. That's not much of a justification. This lays claim to emergency powers of dictatorial nature, and it is exceedingly dangerous as a societal foundation. It's also incompatible with the basic idea of a republic, in which the rights of the individual stand paramount to the whims of the state or the mob. So this ought to be especially so in emergencies with low information for what could be more likely to work a vast harm than, va- than great power to coerce usurped and wielded by those in the dark. Again, this is not a viewpoint that can be granted equivalence to a system that respects rights. Doing so is, yet again, pure nonsense. And so Elgato Malo says... This all fails in epic fashion. The idea of we didn't know about how, uh, we didn't know how, uh, so we didn't know. So how about a little amnesty for all the crazy damaging things we did to you in direct opposition to your own desires? That's just not going to wash. 
And this is especially so coming from Emily. Emily Oster, in her case, it's not even, it's so clearly not even true. It feels an awful lot like the desperate play of someone who's realized just how far on the wrong side of the line she wound up, despite knowing full well what the right side was. Let's not pull any more threads to see where they go, said the lady whose sweater was rapidly gathering around her feet. Oster gathered and published the very data, and it's linked here, that shows the utter inefficacy of masks in schools and then craven out of reporting it honestly for fear of social and career consequences it was bringing down. This makes it seem odd that she so champions those in the dark as she herself was clearly one not so blinded. She claims to be data-driven, but in the event was in fact driven from the data and back into alignment with orthodoxy. And this is a high-status, large-platform player. If she can't stand up to the sorts of panic pressure to conform to regimes of misinformational messaging, then what hope have many others? Of all the people who should have had the confidence to follow data over diktat, and not should not a trained professor of data handling rise to the fore? But this failed. And we would avoid such failure in the future, perhaps uh, maybe a, if, if a bit of culpability is spread around. Now, as an economist, surely Ms. Oster must understand incentives. If there's no cost to having acted poorly, rashly, and without consideration or information, despite the ill effects that it had on others, are we not just subsidizing more such antisocial activity in the future? I get to run amok, wreck your life, and then call Ollie Ollie Oxen free and skate on blame. Sorry about your biz, your kids, the vilification, the dodgy jabs, eh, collateral damage. What kind of system is that? It's liberal. It's literally calibrated to maximize misbehavior. And Elgato Malo says, don't even get me started on folks like the NIH and CDC and FDA who were not in the dark, but who knew full well they were cutting corners, publishing fraud, and telling lies about everything from masks to vaxes to lockdowns and COVID origins. We trusted them, so what, did, what we did to you because of it is not our fault. That's not a real excuse. In fact, that's the exact form of authority submission we must build systems to be robust to, not to excuse away. What Emily suggests to me seems to be a recipe for doing this all over again. Look, I'm not saying you have to hate someone forever for being fooled, but to trust them in the future, that's another matter. That has to be earned. But this gets more complex. Being wrong is one thing, okay? You made a mistake, and this I can forgive so long as it was your mistake. But when you take that mistake and you make it mine by forcing upon me actions and restrictions to which I do not consent, and to threaten the lives and livelihoods of me and mine because you're running around half-cocked and have no respect for the rights of others, well, that's something altogether different, isn't it? The rights of a free people do not end where the fears of frady cats and temptations of tyrants begin. So getting a disease is one thing, but presuming the coercive dispensation to take whatever your conclusion is, especially if you're in the dark, and force it upon the rest of us because it makes you feel less frightened, or perhaps it allows you to savor the dark frisson of being beastly to others while telling yourself you're a good person for doing it, that's not something you get amnesty for. There's a sleight of hand in the thinking here that somehow... That like somehow having misunderstood a pandemic excuses the mass scale abrogation of rights and reason. It doesn't. Such ideas are anathema to the persistence of a free society. And man, does it feel good to see the people who pushed all of those lockdowns being called out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, a shout-out here to MonticelloCollege.org, HSLAmmo.com, and LifesavingFood.com. I have links in my show notes, which you can find at thebrianheidshow.com. In fact, look down at the bottom of the page. See that big subscribe button? Share with me your email address, and I will send you a copy of my show notes, complete with links to the relevant articles and guests every time I do the show. It's pretty unobtrusive. I'm not going to spam you to death, but it's something you might find helpful if you're one of those people who likes to dig a little bit deeper and, uh, and be informed. So a couple of articles I want to share in this segment. I want to start with one that just so well illustrates how sometimes the best thing that government can do is simply get out of the way. Paul Rosenberg's frank letter to the homeless man under the bridge is a beautiful example of this. This is something he actually uh, shared, I believe, about eight years ago. But he says, I still feel the same. So his letter to the homeless man says, I see you standing there asking for help about once a week. You're always polite, and I respect that. I'd like to do something for you, give or something that would mad, matter long term. So giving you a few notes or coins now and then may be fine, but I'd like to, I really like to improve your situation more permanently. In other words, I'd like to give you a job. Now, Paul says, I used to hire people, and I especially liked hiring people who had been denied breaks. He says, I did that whenever I could. If you and I could be transported back in time, I'd hire you. And I'd feel good about it because I think having a job would do you a lot of good. The fact is, however, that I can't hire you, and I'd like you to know why. Now, he says, I used to run my own contracting firm. I enjoyed the work, and I liked being able to drive past a building and say, I made that. Having employees, however, was torture. I liked having them in some ways, but he says, you know, I liked the guys. It made me happy to see them taking care of their families with paychecks that I signed. That was very gratifying, but it wasn't enough. And there are three reasons why. Number one, making payroll. He says, my first problem was simply cash flow. I was solely responsible for having enough money in the bank every week. And that could be nerve wracking, especially when customers weren't paying their bills on time. It's not fun to think that a family won't be able to buy groceries if you can't collect your invoices. Still, that part didn't cause me to give up on employees. It was hard, but so long as my employees were working, we were making money, so there was always something coming in at some point. Somehow, he says, I was able to pull it off. Number two reason, though, was being hated. He says, over time, some of my employees became jerks. This seemed to grow from envy and stupid ideas about labor versus management. These guys decided that I was getting rich off them and demanded I pay them more, more than they deserved and more than the company could afford. And the really nasty part was this. It was always the guys I had done the most for who hated me the most. And as soon as I sat down with them and explained why I couldn't pay them more, they started stealing from me. Now he says, I fired the thieves, of course, but... These experiences really soured me on employees. I had not only given these guys a job, but I had legitimately felt good about helping them to feed their families. In return, they hated me, called me names, and stole from me. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, by itself, that was almost enough to make me swear off employing people, but not quite. But the third reason, the IRS, he says, what really drove me over the edge was dealing with the government and the IRS in particular. They were abominable. I had to file forms with every payroll, and if anything on them was wrong, they penalized me heavily. And if I paid them a single day late, they penalized me heavily. And if they said I did something wrong, even if I didn't, there was no way to change their verdict. 
Reason and evidence simply didn't matter. I eventually talked to a tax lawyer who explained the situation to me. He said, forget about fighting, Paul. There is no innocent until proven guilty in a tax court. You're automatically guilty, and you have to try to prove yourself innocent, which is very hard and very expensive. Just pay them. I know you hate that, but you have no other choice. Fighting them would ruin you. Now, Paul Rosenberg says it wasn't just the money that got me about this. It was that they were heartless tyrants. Having the facts on my side didn't matter. Intelligent intelligent arguments didn't matter. Either I paid what they demanded or they would hurt me worse. In many ways, it wasn't much different than the local gang of street thugs demanding protection money. So he said, that's why I can't hire you. Having employees locked me into a single role in life, that of a despised slave. And when I finally realized that, I walked away. I was lucky. I had the ability to move into other specialties and thrive in difficult niches other guys probably couldn't have. So, what I really want you to know is this. I'd like to help you. You deserve a chance at a decent job. I'd like to be the guy who gave it to you. But the system demands that I must live as a slave in order to do so. And I won't do that. He says, I very much wish that things were different and I feel sorry every time I drive by that I can't hire you. But I would never ask anyone to live as a slave and I won't live that way myself. So he says, I wish you well. And if life in these parts should ever pull back from the present reign of oppression, I hope to run into you. And on that day, I hope to either hire you or do business with you. We would both have so much to gain from it. I don't know why, but that uh, that essay really, I thought, struck a nerve. And I think it's a beautiful explanation of what we're having to deal with in terms of, you know, why is it so hard, you know, to, to, to run a business, to start a business? I think he just gave you some really good reasons why. And yet, note, there are still people who have the backbone and the wherewithal to get out there and, uh, and make it work. You know, thank God for the, for the small businessman and small businesswoman. They really do a lot and against crazy odds. All right, a couple other things that I wanted to uh, point to your attention toward. Um, can an evil act be justified if we believe it's sufficiently positive? This is from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. Marvelous, marvelous article. It's titled, Why Would Why the Ethics of Would You Kill Baby Hitler Are More Important Than You Probably Think? And he actually uses a, a one of the rebooted uh, Twilight Zone episodes from 2002, The Cradle of Darkness. And it, this is not just, you know, cut and dried. Oh, well, of course, if it was baby Hitler, we all know we'd all kill him. But you got to remember... At the time he was a baby, the, the man was totally, I'm sorry, the baby was totally innocent. So maybe you got to choose carefully, you know, where those consequences take you. And this is a wonderful exploration by, uh, and by the way, link to the, uh, uh, he has a link to the uh, Twilight Zone episode in here as well. And, and his point is simply this. The Twilight Zone may be a work of fiction, but the moral ethics of the episode are sound in that they remind us of the danger of committing evil acts to achieve desired outcomes. I know it's, it's probably tempting to say, well, only the other side, only the, my political opponents would do that. Truth be told, though, no, it could be your side. This is one of the places where I stopped calling myself a conservative years ago with the ramp up to the Iraq war, the second Iraq war. 
because I quickly learned that, uh, you know what, the neoconservatives who were in charge in the Bush administration were absolutely fine with starting a preemptive war against a nation that never materially harmed the United States. I watched that happen, and frankly, my innocence was diminished with the realization that all these guys who talk the talk about Constitution and, you know, good limited government and respecting freedom and sovereignty, no. Nope, they were just, they were just as power-hungry as their left-wing counterparts. Yeah, it was a pretty painful awakening. I think I lost a lot of listeners because my conscience would not let me, you know, cheer and wave the flag and act like this is a good thing. Well, John Miltimore has a marvelous take on this, and, and it's, it's probably a good thing for all of us to have clear in our own minds. Can we do something evil and still be a good person, even if the consequences are somehow positive? You know, it's, it's, it's a tough call, but uh, definitely it's, a, it's an essay worth reading, and I would recommend find 25 minutes to sit down and watch the uh, Twilight Zone episode he links in there. It's a pretty good one, and it's, and it's got a nice Twilight Zone twist. All right, one final article I want to point toward you. Um, and again, we're, we're a week away from the midterm elections. And the flat-out abusive governance of the last couple of years clearly is motivating a lot of voters in this midterm. I'm going to include in my show notes today an article from J.B. Shirk that points out this is the hands-off-our-kids election. It's a doozy. And he's, he's right. What got a lot of parents motivated was what was being done to their kids, whether it was masking in schools or whether it was, you know, the school closures or now it's it's the, the hardcore left-wing woke. You know, we've got to teach them pronouns. We've got to teach them about, you know, the importance of dressing in drag and all this other, you know, rainbow-colored stuff. Parents have had enough. Parents are starting to recognize, you know what, this is not healthy. We are not going to sit back and allow our kids to be used as little social laboratory rats to try to to further somebody's social agenda. And I know, you know, I hope this doesn't sound like, boy, people sure are angry. They're going to be in there, take that, you know, as they're voting. But I think people have a reason to be righteously ticked off. My hope is that the people who are voting are carefully vetting their candidates based on whether they supported that nonsense or not. This is The Brian Hyde Show.